If you have a Bible, please turn to Matthew chapter 2. Now, the last several weeks, especially the last four weeks, as we've been in Genesis chapter 3, uh, the teachings here have been fairly heavy. I think every week I get up here and go, okay, this is the hardest one ever, something like that. Especially last week, as we were talking about what God does about evil, about um, the, the judgment of God mixed with the mercy and the wrath of God, that sort of thing. That was a really difficult subject to get through. Now we've kind of, we're in the, a really fun season. I think a lot of us in here uh, really enjoy the Christmas season, the Advent season. It's like one of the most important seasons on the church's calendar where we um, celebrate the Advent, the coming of Christ. Um, and, um, and I, I kind of what, what I want to do the next couple of weeks is just reflect with you on the Advent of Jesus. And so these teachings won't be those difficult, heavy, whatever things. These will be more of, let's reflect together. That's what we're doing this morning. I just want to reflect with you for a uh, short period of time on the birth of Christ, uh, looking at a couple stories and pericopes inside of the two narratives that we have, Matthew and Luke. And probably next, year, next week we'll do Luke. So if you have a Bible, let me read to you Matthew chapter 2. And I'll go down to verse, about verse 18 or so, and, um, and then I'll pray. Verse 1, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may, may, uh, may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country and by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod... When he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all, the, and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that had been ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Let's pray. God, as we enter this really 
amazing season of Christmas, of Advent. I pray that our hearts would rejoice, that we would sing joy to the world. The Lord has come. And God, I pray that you would turn. I know this time for, for some people is, is a really dark time, maybe because of some hurt in the past or some loss or something. I pray that you would bring us the joy of Christ in the midst of maybe the darkness that we're in. I thank you for the context of Christmas, that it was during a dark period in Israel's history that you were born. I pray that we would get that in our hearts, that we'd get that, that Christ is born, the light has come into darkness. And so, Lord, if tonight, if today, we're feeling, feeling the, the pressure of the dark night of the soul, I pray that the light that is Christ would come into our hearts, that we would worship you, that we would be like these wise men that are found worshiping Christ. And so draw us to that place, Lord. I pray for your help. I ask that you give me words to speak. We're here to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, again, I, I, what I want to do today is I just want to reflect on, if you, if you look, if you read through the Gospels, you have Luke's Gospel and Matthew's Gospel are the only two Gospels um, that mention the birth of Christ. You have Matthew, two chapters, and Luke, two chapters. So four chapters constitutes the biggest holiday that we have all year. That's all we have in the Gospels about um, the birth of Christ. And if you read the context, the context is everything. I love, I, I can't get away from this every single year, and Christmas sermons are the hardest sermons for pastors to preach. But every single year I, I sit down to study and reflect on the Advent for myself. I can't help but take us back to the context of the Christmas season or the context of the Advent of Christ. The way that Luke tells this story, he starts with Caesar Augustus. Matthew starts with King Herod. That's very important, especially to understand the context. Luke starts with Caesar Augustus. And this is what Luke says about the, the coming of Christ, the birth of Jesus. And you've probably heard this many times, Luke chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. There's a context in which the Christmas story is set. There is a, there's a scene. There's this whole thing. I've always been fascinated by the context of the Christmas story. So every single time I teach it, I always bring up the context. Actually, one of the dumbest things that I've ever done as a teacher was done around Christmas time. It was like 12 years ago, maybe 11, 12 years ago. I was a youth pastor, and I did this thing where I had my wife, who was not my wife then, she was uh, not even my fiance then. She was my girlfriend that we've dated through high school. And the youth group knew us, and, and, and my wife Ashley was like then, like she is now, deathly afraid of crowds, and she never really went up front for anything. Um, but I made her go up front with a mic. Never happens, okay? So she's up front with the mic, and that throws everybody off at the very beginning because I'm nowhere to be found. I'm hiding in the back. There's this office behind the, 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 the youth room, and I'm in the back with the door kind of cracked. where I can see everyone still, and I'm like shaking. I'm so nervous. And so Ashley comes up forward with the mic and says, hi. And everybody's like, what in the world is she doing? She's, and she starts like this. She says, I, and it's around Christmas time. And she's like, I, I, have, to, I have to tell you something. Um, I have an announcement to make, and I don't really know how to say this. But the leadership, and I'm getting nervous even talking about it, um, the leadership of the church has, uh, has told me to say this to you, um, so I'll just come out and say it, um, I'm pregnant. And everyone, every high schooler was like, what? Like screaming, like, yeah, like looking around, I'm looking through the crack of the door going, like shaking, going, oh my gosh, and they're all looking for me. They're like, where's Dave? We're going to kill Dave. Where is he? So she's looking around, and, I'm, and she's, standing, she's like, wait, wait, wait uh, calm down. But it wasn't Dave. And so everybody's like, oh my gosh, Ashley, we're going to kill you. 
And so, and so everyone's like, like, couple girls are crying. Like, it's just horrible. And Ashley goes, it was the Holy Spirit. And she walks away. And I walk up, and like, just this dumb, young teacher, I'm like, guys, that's the way it was back then. <laughs> the context, I, it was horrible. Like, parents got angry. I got, like, in trouble. Girls were crying. High schoolers don't know how to shift emotionally. You know, like, what? Am I laughing? Crying? Is this happening? What's happening? Like, everybody's flipping out. Even, like, when I think of that story again, I, th- I get nervous again. So, it was so horrible. I don't know why I did that. It was... <laughs> we always take the story of Christmas out of the context, and it's not really good. Like, Mary was a teenage girl who was pregnant, who had, who had to say something like, it was not Joseph. Joseph was actually, had, had to be convinced by an angel. You take her as your wife. The, the baby in her is from God. He is, he is Christ the Lord. His name is Jesus, and he will save people from their sins. An angel had to go tell him that. We always take the context of Christmas out of Christmas. And I think when we leave the context in, we see the bright, shining light of Jesus coming through. The Christmas story has a context, and the context is political. The context is national. The context of Christmas is laden with the expectation and hope of the Jewish people. In Isaiah 9, it says this, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a deep land of darkness, on them light has shined. See, it was in the, the, in the 300s that, that the church calendar shifted to celebrate Christmas on December 25th. The church celebrates Christmas on December 25th on the darkest, coldest, longest night or period of the year on winter solstice. Why? Because this is the biblical context in which Christ was born in a land of deep darkness. I know that there's some people who get very depressed this time of year. Very depressed. People that don't like Christmas. I mean, all the cheer and stuff, they can fake it for a while, but they're like, I'm sick of it. I'm sick of the music. It started before Thanksgiving. I'm sick of all the fuzzy sweaters and the ugly sweater things. I'm sick of all the, the presents. I don't know who to buy for. I don't have a significant other to share hot cocoa with. I don't have that. And it's dark. You're dark. It feels dark. That's the context of Christmas. An expectant hope. People wanting a savior. People wanting a king. People wanting a deliverer. It says this, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. And this is the context, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken. How is God going to break it? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So the way that Luke starts his story, he starts by introducing us to a man. This pompous man who had enough guts to demand that the whole world should be registered for tax reasons. His name was Caesar Augustus. He was the great nephew of Julius Caesar. He was a man who was a god in some people's eyes. He was their lord. But the irony of the way that Luke tells this story is that, okay, here's this Caesar who is the Lord of the known world, but in, the, in a corner of his kingdom, a teen, in a teenager's womb, in Bethlehem, 
Going, to be, going there to be registered, in that womb lay the true God who became a man. This is the way that Luke sets up the Christmas story. He sets it up by contrast. The most powerful man in the known world is telling the whole world, everyone in the world, what to do. All the while, in a poor, peasant, insignificant little teenager's body lie the Savior of the world, God in human flesh. But Matthew tells his story a little bit different. His story is a little bit more Jewish. He starts his story by mentioning the most powerful man in all of Israel, King Herod. He says this, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Herod the king. That's the context that Matthew sets the story in. Herod was not a Jewish man. He was an Edomite. Therefore, he was not the rightful heir to King David's throne. He should not have been sitting on the throne in Israel. He knew that. Everybody knew that. He had no right to be sitting on that throne. But he was made a king by, the, by, by Rome. He was made a king over the Jews by Rome. Rome ruled the known world, and they installed Herod as king. And he ruled Israel by excessive taxes, by killing everyone who was a threat to his throne. He even had one of his wives killed and three of his sons killed because he was paranoid of them plotting against him. At one time, Herod left orders right towards the end of his life that when he died, when King Herod died, he said, when I die, I want one person, one member of every family in my kingdom to be executed so that the whole nation will mourn on the day that I die. At one time, Herod had more money, some people have said in some estimates, he was, that he was the richest man to ever live. Herod was powerful, rich, dangerous, and then one day, these astrologers, these wise men came knocking on his door in Jerusalem. And it says, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Most historians and scholars believe that it wasn't that the star led them to Jerusalem. They saw the star and they interpreted it as this. A king is born. The Jewish king is born and they hoof it to Jerusalem. They go to Jerusalem, they knock on Herod's door and they say this. Where is he? Where is the one that is born king of the Jews? They ask Herod where he is as if he was in, this, in his palace. But notice that, the, that these wise men, these magi, don't go to Herod and ask, who was the one that was just born to be king? Who was the one that was born to become king? They, ask, they say this, where is he who, is, who has been born king? Where is he who has been born already king of the Jews? Who was born the king, the true king, the born king, the born ruler? Where is the rightful king? That's what they were asking. That's what Herod heard. Where is the one who truly deserves, the only one worthy to sit on King David's throne? Where is he at? And when Herod heard this, he was troubled. See, you may think that what makes Christmas so cheery, what makes Christmas so, non, so religiously non-threatening, I mean, almost anyone could celebrate Christmas. Only everyone can embrace the Christmas spirit. I think the reason why it's so universal to the, to the, you know, on the, for the most part, so universal, it's because Christmas is so non-threatening. Christmas is, is about a baby, and nobody is threatened by a baby. 
Christ has come as a baby, and maybe that's the point. He's come as a baby, so when we talk about Jesus Christ coming as a baby and singing all these songs, almost anyone can join in. Like, well, it's a baby. How non-threatening is a baby? And that's kind of the point. That's part of the point going, uh, that, that Matthew is drawing us to here. Maybe the point of Jesus among us as a baby is that he's innocent, is that he's non-threatening. He's lowly and lying in a manger. God in flesh among us in the humble state of a man. As Fred, Frederick Beekner says in one of my favorite pictures of Christmas, he writes, the child born in the night among beasts, the sweet breath and steaming dung of beasts, and nothing is ever the same again. Those who believe in God can never in a way be sure of him again. Once they have seen him in a stable, they can never be sure where he will appear or what, to what lengths he will go to or what ludicrous depths of self-humiliation he will descend in his wild pursuit of humankind. If holiness and the awful power and majesty of God were present in the least auspicious of all events, this birth of a peasant's child then there is no place or time or so lowly and earthbound, but that holiness can be present there too. And this means that we are never safe, that there is no place where we can hide from God, no place where we are safe from his power to break into and recreate the human heart because, because it is just where he seems most helpless that he is most strong and just where we can least expect him that he comes most fully. This is the Christmas story. The Christ child is approachable. The manger is accessible. Christ, God in flesh, in human flesh, broke into our world, the one he created to save us. And there is an aspect to the Christmas story that says there, there are no links that he is not willing to go. No ludicrous depths of self-humiliation that he is not willing to plummet. There is nothing God is not willing to do in his wild pursuit of you. There is a part of Christmas that says that. No matter where you're at, the worst, lowest place, the darkest place you've ever been to in your bedroom, to the darkest place you've ever been to in the city, there is no place that God is not willing to go to reach you. There is a part of that. If he was born in a manger around animals, in a borrowed manger, there is God, the king of the world, the king of the universe, the king of the cosmos. If, there is, if he was born there, there is no place he's not willing to go to save you. There's no place he's not willing to go to redeem you. That is one part of it. There's a part, to be honest, that we all like. There's a part that warms our heart. There's a part that even the hardest person was, will say, wow. That's one glorious point that we have a rescuer among us, and that rescuer is Christ the Lord. But there is still another application, one that starts all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, a promise that God made, a promise that God said, I will crush the serpent's head. From Genesis 3 on, the world is ran by tyrants. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we were told that humanity, you and I, were created in the image of God. We were given a cultural mandate as God's icons to govern the world on Christ's behalf or on God's behalf. As, as image bearers of God, reflecting God, we're to rule this world on, on God's behalf. But Adam and Eve were tempted by the ultimate tyrant, Satan, to usurp the rule of God. It, it, was, it was found that hu what humanity really wanted 
And what we still want to this day is independence from God. An independence from God that enables us to decide for ourselves what is good. To decide for ourselves what is not good. Every single one of us usurp rule in our lives. Every single one of us, we want rule. Not God's rule as God's image bearers, but our own rules. We want to be our own gods, our own goddesses, our own kings, our own rulers. We are not rightful kings, but we make ourselves kings. You are not the rightful king of your life, but we make ourselves rightful kings. And Herod was no different. That's the point that Matthew is making in his context of the Christ story, of of Christ coming as a man. Herod was no different. He was not the rightful king. He knew he was not the rightful king. He wasn't even Jewish. He was placed there by Rome. And you know what this vulnerable child looks like to Herod? He's like, oh, cute little baby. No, no, no. Christ, the Christ child, baby Jesus, was a threat to Herod's throne. He was a threat to Herod's kingdom. This baby poses such a threat to his throne that the most powerful man in Israel kills a whole village full of other babies in order to try to get rid of him. Jesus... Infant Jesus is a threat to Herod's kingdom. But if you were to really understand the Christmas story, the advent of Christ, it's actually a threat to any kingdom, any national kingdom, any personal kingdom. See, most of our postures in our lives is that I'm the king of my life. I'm the king of my little world. It's my kingdom, and I rule it. I'm the king of my money. I'm the king of my relationships. I'm the king of my marriage. I'm the king of my apartment, my flat. I'm the king of my job. I'm the king of this city. I am the king of my little world. I'm the king of my art. I'm the king of my job. Everything. It's, it's mine. It's mine. It's not God's. It's mine. We all do this with all these little things that we have. We think we are the king, and we rule, and we have little kingdoms that we set up. But the point of the Advent story that both Matthew and Luke tell is this. Caesar isn't Lord. Jesus is Lord. Herod isn't king. Jesus is king. You can't save yourself. You can't rule yourself. You can't run your own kingdom. This means that Christ must rule your life. This means that Christ is the rightful ruler of every single life here, of every single heart here. See, when Jesus came to this earth, he didn't do his little part that we can do our little part. He's like, okay, I'm going to come and do the whole, like, dying on the cross thing. Now you go and do your thing. Christ has done it all. I I was reading this book where, in the book, um, the author asks um, one of his friends, when were you saved? And the person said, 2,000 years ago. Saved 2,000. See, it's all. Christ has done it all. He's the king. It's rightfully his. Christ is the king. In his, his lordship, he's done it all. And what we need to do is we repent and become a part of his kingdom. We repent and become a part of what he's done. A lot of us think, well, it's, it's me making, like, I have to do something, and I have to do this, the, like, this part, and I have to, uh, all, salvation is all about us doing something. Jesus is king. He has come. He has conquered it all. He's won it all. He's come as, as, a, as a baby, and as a baby, he was a threat to people's kingdoms. Christ is a threat to our kingdom. See, Herod knows full well the implications of the rightful king being born. He knows that he's the king above all other kings. He's the true sovereign king. 
And what that means is that his kingdom is either going to come to an end or he's going to kill him. It's very interesting that when they ask him, that, uh, where is this king that is to be born? And Herod calls um, this, this, this king to be born the Christ. He knows exactly who he is. Where is the Christ to be born? Where is the deliverer, the Messiah? He knows exactly who he is. Herod knows all the implications of this. I either kill him or my, my kingdom is threatened. My kingdom is overthrown. For us, for those of us who know who Jesus is, that he is the king, for many that threatens your kingdom. It should threaten your kingdom. The kingdom that you've built around money, about, around relationships, around work, around self-image, around sexuality, those kingdoms should be tumbling down at the feet of Christ. So you only have two, two choices. Though. You either go, and this is what's so ironic about Matthew's gospel. Matthew's gospel is all Jewish. The first people to find and look for Jesus and worship him were pagans, people who worshiped the stars, and God reached out to them first. And they went and looked for the Christ. And you know what they did? They knew. Instinctively, intuitively, they knew the, the, the king, the real true king is born. Let's go worship. And Herod knew what to do too. The king is born. Let's kill him. Those are two, those are, those are, I, I hope those are the only two things that you're going to do. You're going to either worship him or you're going to go, I need to put to death this whole faith in Christ thing. In its infancy, as it takes root in my heart, as I start to believe in Jesus, I have to kill it at its root because I'm not, I can't let it take over my life. I know the threat that it's going to cause my kingdom. I know the threat it's going to cause me with my relationships, with my time, with my money, with my belief, with my education. I know all of that. It's going to threaten all of it. I'm going to be on shaky ground. I have to kill it at its root. But I want to invite you today and during this season to worship. To worship Jesus. To surrender at the vulnerable feet of Christ the Lord, who has made himself vulnerable for us, to rescue us, to save us, to show us that he is truly the king. But I don't want to get too sentimental where you kind of go, oh, he's my rescuer. He's the king. He deserves our worship. Let's worship him. Let's pray. God, I pray that this church, as we go into this season, would be drawn to worship Jesus. I pray our homes would be filled with worship. Our lives, our jobs, as you, as you give us uh, tasks to, to go out and minister to, to people this season around the city, that we would do it worshiping the King, that we would bring the best that we have and lay it before you and say, you are worthy.